Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I am Rachel Woody, and it is June 24th. We're here at Linnae Estate, and I'm here with Steve and Karen Lutz. And our first question for you both is, why wine? Well, I've been involved in it for a long time, so it was my career path of choice. Um, let's say right out of college, but uh, relatively soon after college, I uh, went to school at University of Oregon. But I'm from Colorado, and I after uh, I graduated in 1979, and there were very few jobs back in 1979 in Oregon, so I moved back to Colorado for a couple of years, and that's when I started uh, getting into wine. Just started drinking it. Uh, started drinking uh, jug wine. Uh, then I moved on to varietal wines, better wines, and started getting enamored with it. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do. So. One day I packed up my car and moved to the Napa Valley and uh, been in it ever since. And that was back in um, 1984. And this is through marriage. <laughs> it was his passion and through meeting him and, um, and just start. We've been married 20 years this year. So it's just, uh, I don't think you could have been with Steve and not been caught up in his passion for wine. So. Mm -hmm. And so I believe uh, we sort of traced to when you came to Oregon, there was the California stop after college. Uh, there was also, I believe, pizza making in the right. midst. And then a, a brief year in England. Right. And then back to Oregon. So how did that transpire? Well, we met. Uh, I took a hiatus from the wine business in 92 and uh, wanted to do a business, couldn't afford to do anything with wine. So I opened a pizza business. And Santa Rosa, California, and she happened to be the food rep, uh, one of my food reps, and so that's kind of how we met and, and got going there. And uh, We started out as friends, and then I changed jobs, um, and we both happened to be single at the same time and thought, let's try dating. <laughs> yeah, and so anyway, we ended up... Uh, we ended up dating, and then um, I ran a pizza place for about five years, and then her dad was um, getting up there and, and starting to become a little more ill, so we decided to sell the business and move to, uh, to England for a year, mm. and that was in 97. We moved mm -hmm. to England and spent a year there. and decided to come back and didn't really want to go back to Northern California. Uh, I had a little bit of family up here in Oregon. Karen had worked up here before. Uh, she's in the pharmaceutical business and did a little bit of work up here and, and liked it. And so we decided just to move to Portland. And uh, so in 98, we came back and uh, bought a house in Portland. And uh, I wanted to come here because there was a wine growing area here. I wanted to get back into wine. Uh, briefly ran a, a wine shop in England while I was there. Uh, so the, 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 and I've always had a passion for Pinot Noir. Even when I was in Napa, uh, I started making homemade Pinot Noir in 1986 uh, from a vineyard that Claude Duval owned in the Carneros area of, of Napa. And was, even though I was in the middle of Cabernet country, I was just always enamored with Pinot Noir. So mm -hmm. started some tasting groups with friends and we, and we tasted uh, Pinot Noir mostly. And back in the 80s, uh, it was very different. Uh, Oregon Pinot, no Pinot Noir is very different here. Mm -hmm. But I'd make trips up to here uh, occasionally and, and try Pinots. And uh, was just always fascinated with it. So it was kind of fortuitous that we ended up back up here in 98. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Uh um, I don't think I'd, have, I'd add much to that. The timelines, it was, uh, uh, if, it feels very comfortable being here because I grew up in England. So it's, it's the, the climate and everything compared to where we were in California. It was just, um, I mean, it just feels more like home, mm -hmm. you know? And all the green, and all green the green hills. And, yeah. yeah. 
So I think we ended up, it was a compromise that he really wanted to do something with, with wine, with, with us, with the two of us. And, um, and I really wanted to have a place to live in the country. So <laughs> it was kind of, okay, <laughs> we kind of met in the middle, except that when we first bought this property, it didn't have any ability to put any any uh, any kind of buildings on it or residences or anything, and so he, he got the he got the vineyard, and right. I had to wait. <laughs> <laughs> Before we delve into more of the Linnae history and how you came to this piece of land, could you share some observations you have on how the California wine industry is different or similar to the Oregon wine industry? Well, <coughs> when we first got here. I would say the California industry is was quite different. Now, I mean, it, it you know, to be honest with you, the California industry back then, in the in the 90s when I was in it, kind of reminds me a little bit of where we are in Oregon today. It certainly the landscape certainly changed here. It's really uh, grown incredibly. I mean, when I opened the tasting room and. In 2006, there were 320 wineries in Oregon, and now there's, you know, uh, we're pushing almost 700. Uh, so, it's it's really exploded here. There's certainly a lot of California money coming up here. Uh, so it's very different than when we we started. Uh, when we started, it was um, it was certainly more. Like this was a, even a little bit remote for for wine country. Most of the wine country is centered in Dundee Hills, and now we've got on this wine on this uh, particular road we have just uh, probably eight, nine, ten wineries now. So really changed quite dramatically. Uh, California, when I was there back in the 80s, uh, Napa Valley actually had seasons. You know, it was seasonal, somewhat like this. Uh, and then by the time I left, it, it wasn't so seasonal. Uh, there were visitors there year-round. And I think that this is an area that's being more and more discovered. Uh, we're seeing incredible amounts of out-of-state people come here, which, quite frankly, is really uh, is something we really need. There's just too many uh, wineries now for uh, Portland to sustain us all. Mm -hmm. So we really like to see the out-of-state visitors and uh, kind of cements our our positions in other states, uh, even for distribution, there's a big demand in other states now for Oregon Pinot Noir, and I think that's just going to increase. So uh, it certainly is, the, it feels like the industry has really grown up here quite a bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think that, don't, don't you think yeah, that I mean, it's I, changed I, quite a bit? Well, I think, you know, back when we first started, Willamette Valley was the, you know, one of the big brands that you could find outside of, you know, here, the West, you know, Oregon, West Coast, if you went somewhere and you looked at a menu, and, and I traveled a lot for business, so I would always look what, what Oregon wines are on the menu, you know? And it was, now it's like you see, you see brands, and you see brands that have got, you know, thousands and thousands of cases of production, where it was really very few that were large like that. It was just a couple of brands. Now we've got That's how true. many? Yeah, we've got tons that are just, we've got so much wine being produced, and any, anywhere in the world you can go. It's like, it's really interesting, but it's always sort of, it's still the big brands, obviously, because, but they can go and they've, I think they've expanded the sort of the Oregon Pinot Noir brand, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a brand that's expanding, and I think the California interests here will, you know, we have one of the biggest producers of wine in California that's really buying a lot here, and I think that they will really um, help spread this uh, Oregon, this Willamette Valley Pinot Noir brand. And that's, to me, as, you know, as a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir producer, that's what we should be branding as Willamette Valley. We have a lot of these individual AVAs, which are great. They're very interesting and uh, offer different perspective. But really, it's about uh, Willamette Valley as a brand to me. So how did you come to choose this piece of property, and what was it like getting the Linnea Estate brand established? Uh, it was kind of brutal, to be honest with you. It was... Uh, well, finding the property has got its own story. Yeah, finding the property was... A uh, piece of luck. Fortuitous. Yeah. It was really <laughs> fortuitous. It was a... 
We've been looking for about eight months, uh, and um, I was doing some consulting work for another winery called Anami at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, w we had a woman who lives up the road who worked for me, and she she had some friends that were thinking about putting this uh, piece of property up for sale. And I had looked at the property in front of us and kind of knew this area, was familiar with it. and. Uh, and I asked her, is it, up, is it that piece up there by Willa Kenzie? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, I've got to come take a look at it. And it was just, it was fortunate that it wasn't on the market. We would have never been able to get it because it would have been snatched up like that. It's just, it's a perfect size uh, for a small producer. It's 21 acres, but it's, it's all farmable grape land except for about two acres and it's all prime a plus grape land it's a south facing steep south facing slope right in the heart of yam hill so uh, perfect elevation and very poor soil so it was really um we came up on an april day in 2000 and uh took about 15 minutes of walking the property after looking for eight months and called the person up who was selling it and uh, asked them what they wanted for it. And it, it essentially, the people that sold us this property were one of the uh, descendants of, of the original, uh, one of the original uh, Yamhill County settling families, the Laughlins. The road here is named Laughlin Road, and we bought it from one of the great granddaughters, Kathy, her name's Kathy Phillips, but her maiden name was Kathy Laughlin. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, very, very lucky to, that they hadn't put it on the market and uh, really we by the end of the day we were basically signing papers because the woman that told about us her husband was a realtor and would have been their realtor so uh, so we were able to to get it closed really quickly all right so i believe you were just telling us about your property and how you found it right so it was uh, like i say it was very uh lucky that we found this property there it's just an to me an a plus site I, I was looking for a site that just had uh, that was fairly steep uh, that was in the right elevation and had really poor soil and uh, the county classifies our soil as the worst ag soil in the county which I uh, which I love uh, it's uh, it's an old sedimentary soil and um, certainly certainly makes makes this particular site but very difficult in the beginning uh, to establish it. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember that April day when we walked up here? Yeah, it was a, a slightly warmer day <laughs> today. <laughs> it was warmer than it is right now um, in June. That's June in Oregon, right? Um, yeah, I think uh, it was hard to envision because it was just a hay field. Um, but he was so excited. Um, and you know, talking about an A plus site, and and I didn't know really anything about what the requirements were for orientation or elevation or soil types or anything. I just could see how excited he was. Um, so it, it, it just was, it was kind of a very memorable day. Yep, I don't really have anything to add to that. It, it was a memorable day, but. Uh, we, we got a little bit lucky too because the winery I was working at, uh, the winemaker there looked at the site as well to, um, to get the site uh, for the winery for the owner then who was a very wealthy guy named Bob Pamplin. And uh, so, and he actually looked at it right before I did. So, uh, but we were kind of fortunate in that the property has an easement into it, and Bob Pamplin doesn't like any properties that have easements. He just doesn't buy them. And so he said, I don't even want to take a look at it if it has an easement. So, and the easement wasn't an issue for us, uh, and hasn't been, so uh, yeah, we jumped on it. So it was lucky for us he didn't like easements. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And then how did you go about choosing the name? Okay. I'll take this one. Okay. <laughs> so I grew up on a lane called Nash Grove Lane, and and so we really the we we owe a lot to my father for the property, and um, because we had t talked about he was fairly um, he was unwell when we went back to England, and he died shortly after we came back. Um, and he left um, a little, he, he was one of those guys that put money in blue chip stocks and let it sit for 30 years. And my siblings and I were like, 
wait, what? There's like money in blue chip stocks somewhere? And he hadn't really told anybody. Like, so we were all a bit surprised and we, we, we benefited from um, his estate. Um, and we, we just thought, let's do something with that money. And so we took, the, took a little bit of money and put it down on the, on the, uh, on the property. And so Steve wanted to do something to, to really to memorialize that. And so we were tossing around Nash Grove Lane, Nash Grove Lane, and then one day he says, I've got it. He said, it's going to be Linnae. And I said, Linnae? And he says, yeah. Well, we can't call it Lenny's place, because my dad was Lenny. Um, I'm like, I don't know. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my father, but my father was, um, he was, he was a difficult man. I mean, he, we had a very, all of us had a very complex relationship with him. He was very stoic, very closed, alcoholic. Um, so he had to kind of twist my arm and say, no, like, this is what we should do. I got it. I see it. I see the label. He had a, such a clear vision. And I talked to my siblings, and they're like, really? That's what he wants to do. I'm like, that's what he wants to do, you know. And so now I'm, you know, I think when I look back on it, I'm like, it made perfect sense, you know. And and I love the label, and I love that it does memorialize him. And and he was such a man of the land. I grew up on a farm, um, and I, I think he would just love this place, you know. I mean, he would be so proud and happy. So. Yeah, I think that's really well said. That's it was it was really clear to me. And <clears throat> what happened is is we were really going to call it Nash Grove Lane for for a while. And I had this idea of a label uh, for for that particular uh, that particular name. And I was looking at a picture of 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 Lenny one day, and it just like. Uh, just the light bulb went off and I went Lenny and I loved the way it sounded it was easy and it also just uh, it really the reason we are here is because of him so I really wanted to um, I just thought it made perfect sense for for marketing him as a part of of this because he is a part of this and uh, and it kept it really in the family which I really liked as well so we have some single clone wines, for instance, named, we have one named Karen's Pomard after Karen. We have a clone named Jill's 115 after her mom. We have one called Eleanor 114 after, um, after my mother. Uh, so it does kind of keep it in the family. We actually had one called Sad Jack, which everybody thought was a gambling a term. <laughs> a relative. Uh, but they thought it was a gambling term for some reason. But uh, it was actually named after our two uh, late dogs, uh, dogs, Sadie and Jackson. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we might resurrect that at some point. So. Yeah. <laughs> and all of our employees came up with a different story. It was funny. Yeah, yeah they, 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 Some of them knew, and then some of them were like, I can't remember. It's something to do with dogs or... Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we try to keep it, um, keep it in the family here for sure. Yeah. Karen, I know a lot of this was Steve's vision and his passion for wine. What was your take on, okay, we're going to buy land and we're going to do this winery thing? What was that like for you? I think in the, I mean, I, I was, I, can't, I went along with the plan, I think. You know, I, I, I think the property, I thought the property was beautiful. And I, you know, my thing was that always the one day we would be able to spend more time out here and, and there would be somewhere to live. And, um, but in the early days, it was super duper stressful. I remember we had um, in year 2003, we lost a huge block of vines because it was a very hot year and we had like 100% mortality of a whole block. And I just remember having, a, having an aha moment saying like, I have to be careful whether I buy a lipstick or not because we had, n we were like, had no money and we were wondering how we were gonna be able to keep going. Um, so I think at those times it was kind of like, did we do the right thing? Are we crazy? But you just you get caught up in it, and you get caught up in the in the romance of it, you know. Um, so I, I think that that's you just have to come out. You just come out here, and then you're just like, okay, I get it. 
you know. But there's no turning back. Once you start it, there's right. no turning back. So when we ran out of money, I went and raised more money um, because you can't, uh, you can't let it go and you really either have to see it to fruition or you're, the problem is you're going to lose a lot of money. And so you have to keep pointing forward and, and uh, make it work. And finally, it, it, it did. It, it took a while. The, the soil type here, which is the, to me, just really what makes this site unique and, and what I love so much about it, was also really difficult in the beginning. So we threw our business plans out the window you know, after the second year because we had so much mortality. I mean, we, had, we lost 35% of the vines we put in the first year, the first 11 acres. So, so it was really hard to plan for that. And, uh, but then you just adjust. And, uh, but those first couple of years, very stressful. We burned through a lot of money. And uh, that was even before we got to the taste room. And that was a whole other story there. So uh, very difficult in the beginning. Uh, who were your mentors in the industry? How did you prepare yourself for getting into this? Well, I think that the, you know, the, the initial uh, preparation for me was just being in the wine business in Napa Valley. Mm. And uh, I, it, you know, the funny thing is that I remember being at, I worked for Ingelnook and I worked for a Mondavi property called Vachon and then I worked for a property called Maryvale. And so early on, I think that, uh, you know, Mandavis were very interesting people because they had started this whole legacy and this, uh, mm -hmm. and I, I was very impressed by them early on because they would, uh, one of the fascinating things they did, which uh, really formed something that I continue to do is that they, they had blind tastings for their employees and when they compared a Robert Mandavi wine to another wine, they didn't compare it to a wine down the road. They compared it to the best wines in the world. So I got to taste all the first growth Bordeaux's probably a half a dozen times. I got to taste, uh, you know, the top Burgundies, Romney, Conti, and Latasha, and Richburg probably a half a dozen times. And that was really fascinating to me. And they, they kind of instilled that uh, blind tasting um, idea to me. And that's something that is really fun and something that we still do with consumers here. Uh, we actually taste wines blind, not just our wines, but our wines against other top Oregon Pinot Noirs. And we taste our wines against Burgundy as well. Uh, and that, that really kind of started me off. But then as far as when I got to Oregon, um, you know, I had certain people here that I really respected. And it was very different back then. It was very... Uh, the producers were, you know, there were some semi-cult producers here, and then there was there were a lot of producers, but there were some very high-end producers. And I remember in 2005, I I wrote an email to the ten of the, what I thought were the top producers in Oregon, asking them if they'd be interested in any grapes because I wanted some another winemaker to work with our grapes uh, just mm -hmm. besides us. And uh, the first person that answered uh, my email was um, a guy named David O'Reilly, who owns a winery called Owen Rowe. Mm. And I was really, uh, he had started off with another partner in, in a, a brand called Chenet, and then, which is another brand I, I always really respected. And, and I really loved Owen Rowe, and I loved his, his marketing sense, and I, I loved the wines. And so he, he wrote back uh, just one line in an email said, I'll buy whatever you're selling. Um, and he had been looking at the site because he farmed another site across the street up behind Willa Kenzie and so had watched us developing this and kind of knew the potential. Mm -hmm. And so we met and um, he, he and I kind of hit it off. Uh, and I really liked him and liked what he was doing with wine, liked what he was doing with marketing. and so. We, uh, we kind of have a, an informal partnership. Uh, I sell them some fruit and, and uh, make the wine at his facility. He's been a, a real mentor for me and uh, really helped us quite a bit. Yeah, he was, that was another sort of stroke of luck. You know, they say success, you know, it's, it, there, is, there are pieces along the way that are where luck contributes. And so I think that that was also, yeah. it could have gone a different way completely. So. Exactly right. The meeting, yeah. getting, 
connected with David was a huge stroke of luck yeah. for us. Mm -hmm. But I, I say that, but then you also have Steve and who he is, and David responding to someone like Steve, because he's very much about who you are as a person mm -hmm. versus what you know it wouldn't be just whether he liked the grapes it's like well he likes to work with certain types of people that are very genuine and mm -hmm. passionate and absolutely and honest you know so mm -hmm. absolutely you have mentioned that your dirt was agriculturally defined as the worst dirt what does that mean and how does that impact your wine which makes great wine well, the best wines in the world are grown on the worst soils uh, because it controls vigor. Vigor is kind of the enemy. So, uh, and uh, the soil here is is really interesting because it's it's a soil type called pea vine, and most of the pea vines found in the in the foothills of the coast range. There's not a lot of pockets of it around uh, around the valley, so, so there's not many people growing on pea vine. Mm -hmm. And I think the, uh, and you know, it's a mix. We have some Willa Kinsey on the property. We have a little, tiny little bit of jory soil on the property, but it's really mostly this pea vine. And so uh, it's it, it, very hard to develop the vineyard because it's very well drained. It has very little organic matter in it. So, uh, so the, uh, in the beginning, we just couldn't keep things alive. It was hard to keep things alive because we, I, I had this philosophy of dry farming here. We didn't want to irrigate. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, we didn't have a water source. Uh, the, we have a, had an existing well on the property, but there was no electricity to it because when the property was sold, the people below, uh, something happened to that line and we could never reestablish it. So eventually we had to trench, uh, I trenched from the pub house all the way down, all the way down to the road, uh, and we eventually laid some lines and got electricity up there. But in the beginning we just really didn't have any water and it was too many vines to hand water. So, uh, so just very, very difficult. Uh, we had to spend a lot of money on replanting and, and uh, it was very frustrating, uh, but uh, even though it was frustrating, I knew that sooner or later that was going to pay off for, for the vineyard. And, and I think the big thing that imparts to my wines, the two things really, it imparts a certain mid-palate texture to the wines. So the wines really sink in on the back part of the mid-palate. And that's where I think that all great wines should sink in. Uh, and that's really reflective of, of growing wine on a really fantastic site. Uh, and then the wines here all have a little bit of a chocolate or mocha aromatic to them, and that's a very soil-driven aromatic. It really comes from this soil here, and I love that about the wines. Uh, it was one of the first things that David O'Reilly commented about on the wines, and uh, so it, it's, it is distinct to me. I mean, there, this Yamhill Carlton ABA, you get a lot of that chocolate in the wines, uh, and on this ridge in particular. Uh, but it really is distinct in our vineyard. Mm -hmm. How would you describe Linnae's wines and the, the taste that is identified? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, my palate is not as sophisticated as Steve's, but um, to me it's like that, that chocolate, it's like a chocolate cherry. It's mm -hmm. like if it, when it's, um, you know, when it's at its best, when that, when that kind of that piece of the, the, the nose comes out, so to speak, um, it's just, it, you can't stop drinking it. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. It's sort of dangerous because mm -hmm. it's just, it's satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like all these different things. It's not just why. It's like, it must hit these things in your brain that your brain thinks it's getting because of these flavor profiles, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think the wine here is really satisfying. I, I've often told that to people that when they're in here tasting the wine is that, you know, and they buy a bottle of wine. I said, well, you know, you tasted it here and that's one way to experience it. But when you're actually sitting with the bottle, it definitely, it's, it's almost like a, uh, a yamami kind of thing on the back of the mid palate, but with texture versus that taste. But you really do get that sense of satisfaction when you're drinking it. And as some wines skate by that place on your tongue, and uh, but ours definitely doesn't. And and that's why I think it gives you that sense of satisfaction. And I think you get that more when you're just sitting with the bottle 
versus just having a taste of it. Mm -hmm. So. You are known for your minimalist winemaking style. How would you define that, and, and was that a conscious choice, or why did you choose to? Uh, you know, that's just, it is a conscious choice. It's, the big thing here is that it's a learned choice, learned from, um, from other people, uh, other winemakers, other people dealing with Pinot Noir. Uh, certainly David uh, O'Reilly had a big hand in that. I think the goal for us is to take what's in the vineyard, and a lot of people say this, but a lot of winemakers don't do it this way. We like to take what's in the vineyard and try to get it into the bottle as fresh as possible. So we are manipulating it that we put it in oak. So we're, we're you know, that's a manipulation because oak is gonna add another flavor component and it's going to add an oxygen component to it. But we try to keep the oxygen component at a minimum. So we're very careful about uh, exposing it to oxygen, both from just a careful winery management point of view and also uh, really from you know, watching our sulfur levels and things like that. We're really trying to keep any oxidation from uh, not happening while it's in the winery. Then we put it in the bottle, then we just let it go how it goes. So once we get it in the bottle, I think it's a pretty good representation of the vineyard. We don't believe in, you know, there's a lot of winemaking tricks you can do with, with wines to elicit certain things. A lot of people believe in extended barrel aging and a lot of people uh, believe in extended macerations after fermentation and we don't do any of that. We really press our wine out fairly quickly after fermentation, get it into the barrel, uh, and then we don't we don't move it around very much. We don't uh, use uh, uh, centrifugal pumps. Uh, we use uh, gas to push it around from one place or gravity. Mm -hmm. uh, so we keep it pretty pretty simple. We do filter the wines. Uh, we may change that at some point, but um, we we want really stable wines in the bottle as well as uh, as wines that reflect the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And the vintage, yeah. And the vintage, exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. So a great vintage, you don't have to do very much. It's the really strange vintages, hot or cold, that make, make it interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, we see that you've been very good at teaching the public the differences between the Yamhill um, Carlton District AVA and the Dundee Hills AVA. Uh, what would you say is some of the differences and the similarities between the two? Well, definitely the big difference is soil type. And I would say that the soil type uh, is the defining, you know, more so than the microclimate, I would say the soil type is the defining uh, mm -hmm. thing but that differentiates Yamhill Carlton and Dundee Hills. The Dundee Hills wines, to me, are always uh, more red-fruited and delicate and floral. Uh, they are beautiful. I mean, I love those flavors in wine. I mean, you get a lot of um, Parma violets and rose and, and, and these red-fruited flavors out of there. Yamo Carlton, the wines are somewhat more masculine. They're more, uh, the, the acid balance is a little lower. Uh, you definitely get a lot of these coffee, chocolate, mocha, earthier, tobacco, uh, these kind of darker kind of flavors and certainly more black-fruited wines. Black cherry, black raspberry. Uh, so they're both really good, just both really different. And I think it's amazing that we, in this little, little s small area, we've got Pinot Noirs, which really exhibit quite different uh, characteristics. Why do you think it's important that the consumer understands that? Well, I think it's just a fun thing, uh, to be honest. It's really a fun thing. There's no uh, right or wrong or one's better than uh, the other. I just think that it's, for consumers, it's, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to educate consumers about with Pinot Noir. It, uh, Pinot Noir is fascinating. We're growing it in a fascinating, I think, the most interesting part of the United States to grow Pinot Noir. There's certainly some other good areas to grow Pinot Noir. But in this particular area, uh, you know, it's our job as um, 
marketers and educators to get people to understand what we're doing. And, and it's, it's a little bit of a moving target because we certainly changed the way we make wine than wine was made 30 years ago. We changed the, the way that we uh, grow wine uh, in the vineyard. So uh, it's important for us to, to um, not only to sell wine, but to educate consumers because Oregon is really unique. We have different vintages. In California, very consistent from a vintage perspective. Our, our vintages are really different here. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, to me, that's the compelling reason to be here. I love that about Oregon. It's, it definitely more mimics European areas, certainly more mimics, uh, mimics uh, Burgundy much more. And I think it's, it's our job to tell people and show people how we can make great wine from the most desperate kind of vintages. Uh, in Oregon, and and and, and it's it's part of uh, what we do and what we love to do, and uh, and sharing it with consumers is is uh, really fun for me. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, you're you've got if you're tr you're trying to sort of make sure that the consumer knows why one wine is why they like the wine and and how. So if they understand that this is because of this AVA, and as that, that's different from, say, the Red Hills of Dundee, mm -hmm. that then helps them come back and they get, it's like they're, the more educated and the more they understand why they like it, I think that, that then creates loyalties and um, for them sort of that special, okay, I know I like this. But there's also too, I think, back when we first started, it was there wasn't a lot of production from, from this AVA as opposed to, or, or I guess, publicity mm. and so maybe it was sort of that you know that That's part of true. it was kind of like well whoa, whoa, wait we're over here and we, we need to distinguish ourselves um, so I think that was part of it as well I mean I think now production is there's more production here but it's still I think that people were more familiar with the Red Hills and Dundee. Absolutely that's where it all started really yeah uh, you know with David Lett and, e and uh, yeah so it's this this was really a more of an outpost when Willa Kenzie came and, and established their, their vineyard across the street. So I think that it's incumbent upon us to um, it's incumbent upon us to show the differences with uh, AVAs, but but also as a whole, we're all still selling Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's important as well. Probably the most important. The AVAs are fun though. They really are. Yeah. It's for the wine geek. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, the consumers in Oregon are remarkably uh, well educated because, you know, people have been doing this for uh, 50 years of educating consumers about Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, as a, a Pinot Noir consumer, this is, you know, probably the most educated consumer Pinot Noir. Uh, uh, area in the country, for sure. Uh, I don't think anybody really comes close. What would you say are your most and least favorite aspects of the wine industry? Or in working the wine job? Boy, that's a good question. Um, I think my least favorite aspect at the moment is that because it's gotten so competitive here, there's so many wineries, it's turning more and more into an event business. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, yeah, I love, we do a lot of events here, uh, mostly geared around our club members. And I love those events. Uh, we just did a great industry event last night, which is one of my favorite events of the year. But the, the business has turned so event-driven because everybody's fighting for the same customers and trying to show them something different. Or let's have this event till we draw people. And so it's a little bit, to me, uh, starting to, not taking away from the wine, but it's certainly, I don't, I don't think it's enhancing it that much. Because mm -hmm. uh, the events are really geared for more towards entertainment than education. There are certainly educational events. I mean, we do some here. But it's the, the emphasis seems to be on um, how can we capture somebody's attention span 
uh, and and get them to an event here and, and enter, entertain them. How can we entertain people? We've taken the approach more that we try to in, entertain people through blind tastings and educational events. But it's really different now. And, and I would say right now that's my least favorite part of it. Mm -hmm. What's your most favorite? I think the, the farming is really interesting. The farming uh, and, and also the education too. I love sitting down with consumers in a blind tasting. Mm -hmm. Now it's, it's a very risky thing to do is to take your wine and take like seven other of the top wines in this area and compare them in a blind tasting and ask consumers to rank them and score them uh, so you can figure out the group consensus at the end of the tasting. Uh, we've done that for ever since we opened back in 2007 and uh, it, it's, I love that aspect of it. That's, that's really one of my favorite things to do and I like the farming aspect. The farming is, is always interesting because every year things change and you have to adjust to it and and cope with it, uh, and and it's you know it's a it's just a fantastic thing to be able to wake up and and be in this vineyard. Uh, it's it's just incredible. I've always something I always dreamed about doing, and now that I'm doing it, uh, I do. I I really never take it for granted. I always think, oh my God, I get to be here in this place um, when so many other people are sitting in a cubicle in an office building. Mm -hmm. It's just an incredible thing to be able to do. So, so I love being out in the vineyard, for sure. Yeah, I think my answer would be for what I like least about it, I think is, is sort of the difficult place you are with the level of, with the amount of production that we have. And so thinking about the revenue generation and, and being able to, I mean, it's like you, for Steve, he's got like so many things on his plate, but to take it to the next level where you'd say, okay, you can start to hire full-time people and, and take some of those things off his plate, you just, it's like a huge leap. And so that I think is, is, is probably just seeing him struggle with so much on his plate and then for me because of just of where again where you are at this level of production thinking like I still I still need to have a full-time job sort of on the back end mm -hmm. um, but yet I would really like to be here helping him because I know he's got so much on his plate so I think that that's probably the difficulty that the, the thing that I like the least about it right now I mean I think it's been sort of an ongoing thing that we have lots of good ideas like Steve says I've got tons of great ideas of, of marketing things and things that I want to implement and just me is that I can't do it, you know. So I mean, things that I like the most, the things that I like the most. I think that if you think about this compared to my day job, <laughs> it's something. Um, it's there's such a happy feeling around the wine industry that I think that it's people are having fun. You're like when people come in here, they're on vacation, they're out to have a good time. It's such a happy happy place. My day job is involved in mental health and all kinds of health, you know, health related disease and death and destruction and bad, you know, bad things and so there's a lot of drag on the employees and everybody else in that environment and so I think it's just sort of the yin and the yang. Mm -hmm. So it's true. Yeah, it's it's a very lifestyle business. Mm -hmm. And you know that's why a lot of us are in it uh, because we love the lifestyle and uh, it's not a I mean you can make some money in this business but it's not you're not gonna you know very few people are really gonna get wealthy uh, from this it's, it's but the lifestyle gives you a lot of uh, uh, life wealth uh, yeah, it's just exactly. it's a fun business to be in yeah hard but fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> What is your most memorable experience in the industry? Oh gosh, you know, uh, well I can think of two moments that really stand out to me here. Uh, the first one was uh, we had all these issues with dead vines and, and you know we, we didn't set any fruit until the fourth year uh, and finally in the fourth year we made a little bit of wine and um, and it, it just we were bleeding money and, and things were all going uh, not that great. And, uh, and I remember we were, we, I worked at the other winery, we were making the wine over there and uh, 
our first vintage of 04, we had finally gotten it, got it through fermentation, got it barreled up, uh, put it through secondary fermentation, and we kind of force feed it through secondary fermentation to keep it fairly warm. And so by January, it's pretty much done, and it's ready, <coughs> excuse me, it's ready to taste. And I remember uh, kind of, I don't know, it must have been the middle of January, uh, going into the first barrel and putting that thief in the barrel and drawing some wine out. And, uh, and when I put my nose in it, it was just so exotic and it just smelled like that chocolate covered black cherry. And, uh, and I just loved everything about it. And uh, it, it kind of exceeded, I mean, I always knew that this site was gonna make great wine. I, I wasn't sure we were gonna do it the first year, but I remember uh, coming back home to her and just saying, you know what? it's all going to work out, don't worry about it, because I just tasted the wine and, you know, this wine will be fantastic and people will love it, we're not going to have a hard time selling it, it's just, you know, so don't worry about it. And that was like the first moment when I just felt like relief, like, oh my gosh, you know, we're doing something right, uh, we picked the right site. And then the second one was uh, the first year we, we, were open, we started a wine club, and the first um, the first big summer party we had was out on the deck. It was in July. Uh, we had no awning on the deck at that time, and I remember uh, it was just a chaotic event because it was our first event, and I was you know I bitten off probably more than I could chew. I was cooking and doing all this stuff, and I. I had the barbecue going out there and I had, you know, I was enlisting club members and partners. Hell, here, flip this chicken, flip this. It was, <laughs> I was, it was, it was just a manic kind of event. People were having a good time. We were pouring them wine uh, and it's, you know, it, it was like towards the end of July and uh, it was like this, like it is today. These clouds kept coming in, coming in, and coming saying in. saying it was threatening rain and we were so worried because we had nowhere, we hadn't, we couldn't get a, a a tent in time because it sort of it no. was all last minute that this rain was going to come in and so we were just like please don't rain and we had a little tiny chaser <laughs> at that time so we couldn't fit, we couldn't 30, fit anybody, we had anybody. 36 people 40 people here so they're all out of the deck and it we got them we, we set them down and started serving them food and the rain you could just see it kind of coming this way coming this way <laughs> and it's spitting a little bit you know and they're having a great time and I'm thinking, oh my God, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to start pouring here. And so we got through the evening, and at 9 o'clock, everybody left. And I, in fact, I still have a picture somewhere, but I took a plate of food, sat down in the front of the taste room with the doors open, and everybody had just taken off. Down it started coming. It started pouring. And I sat there and just looked out and with some food and some wine, and I felt so amazingly good just that we got through the event, but I just knew that was the start of it. You know, we were going to build a big wine club and start selling wine, and, and it was just a great feeling. It was kind of cathartic to feel like, you know what, most of the problems are in the past, and now it's going to be fun. And, uh, and it kind of did. It started to be fun after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. That's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that Steve has shared some of his thoughts on how the industry has changed over the years. I'm curious to know what your thoughts and observations are on how the Oregon wine industry has evolved. Gosh, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's just the huge thing, obviously, is the number of, of, of labels um, and sites and acreage planted and, and everything else which I think is, um, and then, you know, with some of these big players coming in. So I think that that's, I think it's important to contrast what has changed and what hasn't changed, right? And what we've always loved about it was sort of the community feeling and the lack of competitiveness. And, um, and everybody was like, you know what? There's enough consumers. It's like we, everybody would help each other out. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a great example of the, the reasons that we like it is, is, you know, we did an industry event last night that we do once a year where we invite tasting room employees in. And, um, and we kind of, we open up a ton of wine and we allow, we sell our wine for a 50% discount. And, 
and it, it, it's like you're talking to other people working in different tasting rooms, and they're and they always they're like, oh, you know, we love to send people your way, and and it's the same thing for us. It's like we know we know these people. It's like, well, where would you? People say, where do we go next? You know, we love your place. Where's next? And mm -hmm. to be able to help, um, I just think that for me, when I drive through now and I'm coming in, and I see these these labels that I don't know, mm -hmm. and it's like you want to be able to keep that sense of a small community, but it's gotten so big that you're just it's like I don't know who these people are, and then. We've got these urban wineries that are coming, that are very big right now. So it's almost like people are buying grapes, and then they're starting an Oregon label, and that that detracts a little bit from the community because they're it's a completely different animal, right? Mm. They're not growers, they're 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 not part of our you know our rural community, um, but yet they are still part of the Oregon wine business, um, and and they're helping with. Um, brand recognition, you know, for mm -hmm. Oregon Pinot and Willamette Valley Pinot. But I, I think that that's, it, it's, uh, you know, you think about Carlton, and again, thinking about the things that have changed, things that have stayed the same. Yamhill has stayed exactly the same, and Carlton is sort of getting a little Napa-ish-y. I mean, old Napa, not new Napa. But again, it's like the sort of, you can see what was this, what, what, what it was, and then you can see how it's, it's all this money and, and it, and labels coming in and investors coming in mm -hmm. is changing it. Mm -hmm. It will be interesting to see if it stays. You know, in the early days, the uh, you know the the old uh, the front guard who started the Benoits and Lett and you know Myron and Amity and uh, you know all those people basically had to help each other out because that's the only way they could survive. They'd help each other bottle, they'd help each other you know, do whatever they had to do to survive. And there's always been that kind of uh, spirit underneath here. It's mm -hmm. always been a really cooperative uh, place to, to work and live. And it'll be interesting to see if that changes. I, I mean, it already has changed somewhat, but I think that spirit is still very much alive and I hope it stays alive as it becomes more competitive. Um, I've seen, I saw it in Napa. Napa had that spirit early on as well, and it definitely changed in Napa. Um, and you know, I, it'll be interesting to see how it happens here. I hope it stays alive. I, I think that it's more ingrained here than it was in Napa. So, um, and I think things are different here. It's, it's the landscape is different. So, so we'll see how that pans out in the future. Speaking of future, what is the future for Linnea State? Boy, that's a good question. Um, we, uh, I think that the immediate future is that uh, we're going to try to get Karen out of the corporate world in <laughs> sometime in the near future and have her come help and be involved. And she she has a lot of skills that I don't, so it would be would really help us a lot to have her here. Uh, and uh, you know it's a fun business. We like doing what we're doing. So um, you know, yeah, I think that would that that's it's going to have a huge impact on what we can do. And um, I think you know, like we said, we we have great ideas, but we don't have the bandwidth to implement them. Mm -hmm. So I'm itching to get to be to be out here full time and be able to help. So so we'll see going forward, but. Uh, I, I love doing what I'm doing. Uh, and, you know, never say never. I mean, if somebody came in and offered us crazy money, I might think about selling. I mean, it just, you know, it'd have to be really crazy money, though, uh, because, uh, you know, you when you build a place, and yeah, we've done so much ourselves. I mean, we I can think of the countless things I've done in this vineyard countless things I've done here in the tasting room, uh, you know, part of the building that I've done. And uh, you, you really hard to let go of a place when you've done, you put your imprint on it. And, uh, and plus I just, I love doing what I'm doing. And I think she would love it too. Once she gets here, uh, she'll really enjoy it as well. Mm -hmm. What is the future of Oregon wine? Well, I think it's got a really healthy future. Uh, I would say that the industry right now is stronger than the individual producers. 
because there's a lot of us individual producers who are, I think, struggling a little bit because it's so, there's so many of us now and there's so many choices locally for people to go. But the industry as a whole is very strong. So I think that Oregon's going to see a continued yeah. influx of financial resources from other wine growing areas. Certainly California is very interested in Oregon and uh, not only because the brand recognition for Pinot Noir in Oregon, uh, but also because uh, Oregon has water. Uh, and with global warming and uh, it's, it's getting interesting. Water is a real issue in, in California for winemaking and, um, and I think that that's certainly one of the reasons that sites are set north. So I think the industry here is going to be very healthy. I mean, wine business is always cyclical. There's always going to be downturns. Bottom's going to drop out of it for a couple of years. That's just the way it is. It, it happens every eight or nine years, it seems like. Uh, but the overall, the industry very healthy right now. And I see no reason for that to change. Yeah, I would agree. What advice would you have for somebody who's looking to get into the wine industry here? Don't do it. There's too many of us already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you know, if you you're... You do it for the lifestyle. If you're, if Don't you're, expect to make any money. Yeah, if yeah. you're really passionate about it, if you're really passionate about it, that's what you want to do, you'll find a way to do it. Whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, working with an urban winery, uh, doing going that route, uh, there's a lot of different routes you can do in the wine business and if you're determined to do it, you're going to do it. It's harder and harder to do it. Uh, the way we did it, really hard to do. You'd have to have some money to do it. Now, we were lucky in that we did it at the right time. Uh, doing what we did now uh, versus then would be really difficult. We couldn't afford to do it probably. But um, now that we're here, uh, it, it, it's, you know, it, it all worked out. So I would say if you're not going to start with a lot of money, and you know what, I think you can still be in this business and still do something and start with nothing. You just have to find a way to do it. And if you're passionate enough, you'll find that way. The one thing about the business, uh, about the industry expanding so much, there, uh, there certainly are more opportunities to get involved in it than there were 15 mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. It's harder from a financial point of view to own something, but there's certainly a lot more opportunities to get involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to work in it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The wine industry is traditionally very hard on relationships. Do you have any tips, secrets, advice on how you've made it work? <laughs> <laughs> I Maybe me not working in the business? <laughs> well, early on, also, yeah. Check back with us in five years after I've been working in the business with him for yeah. a <laughs> uh, I think the, the, you know, the hard part is that it you know, has to be doesn't necessarily have to be both of your passion or dream, but you have to have a partner who really buys into it. Mm -hmm. And I think Karen did buy into it. Now, she, there were times where she really wanted to pull the plug on it, no doubt about it, and they were really difficult times. When we built the taste room, for instance, she, she liquidated a bunch of money from her 401k to build this, uh, and that was really stressful for her. It, in retrospect, it just was perfect timing because the market all crashed right after that. Mm. So I uh, took it out at a high point. But it's, uh, you have to have a partner that buys in. And there's going to be, you know, it has killed a lot of marriages. Uh, you have to be very uh, patient. Uh, and y you can't expect to, you can expect to have a really nice lifestyle if you are successful. You can't go into it thinking you're going to make a ton of money. Uh, you might get lucky, something might happen, but it's probably not going to happen. That you're going to make a ton of money, but you can have a really nice life and, and really enjoy the lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would second that pretty much. I mean, it's there were certainly times when I was very, I was, I was, was angry, you know. Um, and I felt like my options had been for wanting to go f pursue my passion 
were limited. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know, we made it through somehow. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the end of my prepared questions for you. Is there anything that I should have asked or any closing remarks? I can't really think of any. I think we covered it. Yeah, I think we did. All right. I think we covered it pretty well. Well, best of luck. Thanks. And thank you very much for interviewing with us today. Well, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, for, Thanks for taking the time to interview us. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.